Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. That in your mercy, at the right time, you sent Jesus to us to rescue us, to redeem us, to meet us in our mess and in our brokenness, and to lift us from darkness and welcome us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in Jesus, the kingdom of light. Would you work in us now by your Holy Spirit? I ask for your help for myself and for us that our eyes and ears and hearts would be open and receptive to your word. And would it bear the fruit that it intends in our lives for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. It is a blessing to be with you to worship together. We are grateful that God has seen fit to put us in a time and place where we can worship Him freely and without fear. Oh, that we would both give glory to God for this gift and that we would labor to use the freedom that God gives for the proclamation of the gospel and that we would endeavor in Jesus' name to do good to love our neighbor, to pursue justice and righteousness as ambassadors of the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation, where through Christ we are made right with God and can be made right with one another. That is our hope and our our foundation. And may we maybe leverage that, maybe utilize and live in light of that under this umbrella that we have of freedom here where we live. We're going to continue our journey in the Psalms this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, we're studying the Psalms this summer, and there'll be um, next week, uh, Charlie, one of our elders, will be um, taking Psalm 5, and he'll start off or uh, get us started on a, on a weekly change of voices, various voices, um, here in the pulpit, unpacking Psalms uh, 5 through 11. Um, and so... Uh, we're excited for that. And so as you're turning to, to four, we've so far looked at Psalm 1 and 2, the first two weeks. And Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a sort of a preview for the entire book of Psalms. If you wanted to use them as the, as the, as the framework through which you could understand the whole book, they highlight both God's Word, His law in Psalm 1, and God's Messiah in Psalm 2. And that kind of gives us an umbrella for understanding how the Psalms are compiled and put together. And then last week in Psalm 3, we were reminded right off the bat of the hope that we have as God's people in the midst of a broken world. Today we'll look at Psalm 4. And like Psalm 3, Psalm 4 is also a Psalm of David. And it's often regarded or understood as a, as a parallel to Psalm 3. In some ways, as I was preparing this week, I, I could have... Uh, taken some of the big ideas and points from Psalm 3 and just preached them again from Psalm 4. Except, while the parallels and themes are clear and they work well together, it's helpful to, to look at them in, in a pair, 3 and 4 kind of together. And there are a few other Psalms that we'll get to with that. And it's nice, I can do 3 and 4 together, preach 3, I'll preach 4 today. Um, as we get uh, further in, Psalm 9 and 10 are also kind of a pair. And so the two different guys are, are preaching on those. And so they're talking about, hey, what are you going to cover? And what am I going to cover? And how are we going to tackle these? But if we were to look at them both together and a little unique, if let's look at it this way. Think of Psalm 3 as, as a prayer for the morning. 
wake up in a place of trial and despair. You're recounting the trials of the previous day. You're, you're thinking about the preservation of God for your life through the night. And you wake up in the morning and you say, God, thank you for preserving my life last night. Would you be with me today? Show yourself to be faithful today. And then think of Psalm 4 as the psalm of the evening. At the end of that day, calling out to God, speaking truth to anyone who would listen, and closing with a confession of hope that the God who gave me rest through the night, the God who woke me this morning and has preserved my life all day long, today, that He will preserve my life still and will give me rest tonight so I can trust in Him for tomorrow. Psalm 3, Lord, the Lord will hear me, the Lord will protect me, the Lord will deliver me. Psalm 4, what I believed in Psalm 3 has been proved. The Lord has heard me. The Lord does hear me. The Lord has preserved me and protected me. He has filled me with joy. Therefore, I will continue to trust in Him. Psalm 3, a psalm for the morning, and Psalm 4, maybe a psalm for the evening. And that's kind of part of our, our framework today. There's a kind of perspective that David seems to find in the midst of his trials. Because it doesn't take much for us to be overwhelmed, right? Even a small amount of persistent discomfort in our lives, a short season of hunger or hurt, can make us unable to see beyond those areas of brokenness and need. Have you ever seen a a spyglass? Like a telescope that a, that a sea captain or a pirate might use. It's about this long and they open it up and extend it. I, I thought we had a, like a plastic toy one at home and I could not locate it. I was going to bring it, visual aid. But you know what I'm talking about? This big, they extend it and, you know, sometimes they're longer or shorter. But the idea is to help you see with clarity something beyond what you can see just with your normal vision. You have a lens that's close to your eye. And then as you extend out the spyglass or the telescope, telescope works in a similar fashion, on the other end, there's a glass that's only a lens that's a little bit closer to what you're seeing, but the effect of the two magnifies your view to allow you to see something you could not see otherwise. The goal is to get clarity, to gain perspective, to see detail. What from here is just a blob of color on the horizon with the help of some lenses giving you perspective. Now you can see actually that blob is a ship and I can see the flags that they're flying and I can see the details. What kind of ship is it? Friend or foe, right? I think Psalm 4 and maybe 3 and 4 together serve as a little bit of a spyglass or a telescope helping us get some perspective. In Psalm 3, I'm trusting God more than my changed circumstance. And in Psalm 4, this is how the Lord has shown His faithfulness to me. Therefore, because now I've seen and I've tasted God's faithfulness, I have some perspective. I know where He's taking me and where it's going and His promise is sure so I can trust Him all the more. And if we're able to gain the perspective that comes through Faith. And that's what David has here is faith. He believes that God will do all that he said he will do. And he's seeing the effects, the small tangible reminders of God's work in his life. And he's going, that was God's grace. That was God's faithfulness. That was God's preserving of my life. That's faith. And if we can find that kind of perspective, then our faith in God will grow. 
And the work of our hands, our actions will then follow suit. They will change in light of what we now believe. We will live according to the faith that has proved true in our lives. So, we need perspective. We need perspective. And I believe faith gives us that perspective. By it, we can see both God's promises as trustworthy, and we can see God's faithfulness proved time and time again. We know His promises to come are trustworthy, and we see Him at work in our lives, and it confirms this faith that we have, this hope, and it encourages us in the midst of trial, even when our circumstances don't change. One last bit of detail on Psalm 4. It has another part of its title. Psalm 4 says, uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, the choir master here is likely the one giving direction to the assembly of God's people when they gather. And they're given musical instruction, in fact. Now, I didn't think, I know Kyle's got a small team today. He doesn't usually have a harpist or a lute. But um, we'll have to just go with guitar. Although, if there are any lutists in the, uh, in the church family, we'd love to incorporate you onto our worship team. Um, be very psalm-like. But it helps us a little bit, I think, understand that these psalms were written and compiled to be recited, to be sung by God's people. So let's read the text of Psalm 4 and then we'll get to unpacking it. Psalm chapter 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. May it accomplish its work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think our natural bent, despite our best efforts, tends toward being overwhelmed. Now, it might not always show the same way in our lives, but there's always like a hundred things going on in our minds at once. Sometimes it presents itself in our lives with depression or anxiety, where we can't seem to quite keep our heads above water with all that's going on. The weight is just too heavy to move. Sometimes it presents itself in avoidance. That we keep ourselves distracted with other things, often frivolous things, just so that we don't have to deal with what's in front of us. And sometimes, I think it presents itself in our hard work. We actually double down on our own efforts because, by golly, we are going to fix this even if it kills us. The challenge with that is we need perspective. We need to understand what's going on around us and where is God at work. You may look at your own life situation and read Psalm 3 and, and ask, ask David, well, what do you have to actually be confident about? Prove it. And Psalm 4 is kind of a response to that. 
Faith is tested and either disproved or proved. What I mean is this. We show ourselves to have faith when we live as if what we believe is really real. (laughs) You and I prove our faith in, in the chair that we sit in. You are proving your faith in the chair you're sitting in this morning by sitting down. The longer you sit there, the more confident you are that that chair will continue to hold you. It was designed to keep you upright where you are. You have faith that the chair will hold you, and that faith produces action. You sat down when one of us said, be seated. I know that might be a simple way to look at it, but we talked about it a little bit at the end of Psalm 3, that David's faith in God produced something in him. It resulted in faith-filled action. And we're going to unpack that here. That's how we'll look at the text today. When we can see with more clarity, when we gain perspective on our circumstances, it produces faith, a confidence in God. And this confidence results in action. It works in us. So we're going to look at the text in three sections. That confidence in God, faith in Him and His promises and in His works causes us to call out to God. Confidence in God, faith in Him causes us to be courageous in speaking truth and courageous in self-sacrifice. And confidence in God, faith in Him causes us to make a good confession. It's a, it confirms our faith. So let's look at the first one. Confidence that causes us to, to call out to God. Look at the text. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. The first place David goes, at the end of the day, he calls out to God. He, he opens with this prayer. And I'm sure he had strategy ses- sessions with those military leaders who were around him trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? I'm sure he had, had planning sessions with his top advisors to know how do we turn the will of the people back toward us and away from Absalom. But at the top of his list, he calls out to God in prayer. Why? I mentioned this a little bit last week as well in Psalm 3. You only call out to someone you believe will actually hear you and actually do something about your problem. And David is bold in his ask. He says, answer me when I call. It almost sounds demanding, doesn't it? But look at the title he gives the Lord. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now this is the only place we find that exact title in the Scriptures. There's other places where uh, Jesus Christ the righteous and the Lord is our righteousness. Things like that are, are heard through the Scriptures. This is the, a little bit unique and it's the way it's put together. But built into this prayer, built into that title, is a remarkable gospel truth. David knows that he has no righteousness of his own. He says it in Psalm 14. And he says it in Psalm 53. And Paul says the same in Romans 3. He says, uh, Romans 3.10, as it is written, and he's referencing Psalm 14, none is righteous. No, not one. The righteousness that David has, the righteousness that we have, we have by faith in Jesus. He is perfect according to God's law. 
He is without sin and without fault. We are not perfect. None of us. Not even close. But we believe by faith that all our sin, all our unrighteousness, is placed on Jesus and hung on the cross with Jesus. And all His perfection and all His righteousness is then given to us. We come confidently to God. We call out to Him as our Father. Not because He owes us, but because we belong to Him. Because when we call to God and He hears the voice, when He hears our voice calling out to Him, O Lord, answer us when we call, O God of my righteousness, when He hears our voice, what He's actually hearing if we are in Christ is He's hearing the voice of His perfect Son interceding for His people. So it is an arrogance to call out to God. It's an acknowledgement of our desperate need. This is the perspective David had and the perspective we need. In the midst of trials... David remembers the faithfulness of God so far. You have given me relief. You have shown yourself to be faithful in many ways. Would you be gracious and hear my prayers? We need this perspective too. What would it look like to start your prayer time rather than with your list of concerns? And there may be many. And I in no way mean to minimize the cares and hurts of life. What if before bed tonight you got out a pencil and paper and just listened for a moment, and then just listed out and wrote out all the undeserved kindness in your life you saw in each thing, big and small, as God's specific blessing and gift to you. How might that change the way we pray, or even call us to cause us to call out to God all the more? David's faith in God caused him to call out to God because he knew God would hear him. And when we are confident that God will hear us, that He's listening to us, that He's listening to you, because you are hidden in Christ Jesus, when we are able to recount God's past faithfulness, it gives us perspective outside of what might be going on immediately around us. And it motivates us. It moves something in our hearts to keep going back to Him with our cares and our woes and our needs because we have faith in God. In Christ Jesus, we call to Him. That's the first thing that stands out. Verse 1. Second, this kind of growing confidence in God's, God causes us to be bold and courageous as we speak truth to those around us. That's the second point. That this kind of faith produces a confidence in us, both in our bold speaking and in our self-sacrifice. In verse 2, David's audience changes. He starts with a prayer to God, and in verse 2, turns his attention to people. Look at verses 2 through 5. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. He starts with a question. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? Now if Psalm 4 is happening around the same time as Psalm 3, it makes sense. He has been run out of his own kingdom by his traitorous son and is hiding in caves, fleeing for his life. But then he goes right after those who would shame him. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He he calls out 
those who are against him. You have been fooled, he's saying, by the smooth talking of a manipulator who is using you for his own means. When will you stop falling for lies? In our modern context, it might sound a little bit like this. When will you step out of your echo chambers on cable news or Twitter? Think about these things. This is a bold call out from David. Notice in verse 3, he reiterates his confidence in God. He, he calls out the, the, the untruth, and then he says, The Lord hears me. Now, he's not saying, Look how godly I am. I alone have this direct line to God. He's saying, The Lord calls out and sets apart a people for himself, and he has called me and set me apart. So I know that he hears me because that's the promise to all those who are his. That's one of the great themes of the entire Bible is the reality that God has called and set apart a people for himself. From Genesis through Deuteronomy to 1 Peter, God has created and called and set apart a people for his own possession, for his own purposes, to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the nations, that they would make known the excellencies of God who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God calls to us to himself and hears us when we call to him. David's confidence speaks to speak truth comes from his faith in God's promise. He continues in verse 4, gives them some other instruction. Be angry, he says, and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds be silent. And verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Upon first reading, this might stand out a little odd. What is going on here? It's one thing to call out those who would mock and shame him. It's another thing to offer correction, a help. The word translated here as anger, be angry and do not sin, actually gives the feeling of being uh, agitated to the point of trembling or shaking. In some cases, it can give us the picture of rage. So verse 4, be angry and do not sin, is telling us there's a right way apparently to be angry and, and maybe a wrong way to be angry. There is anger that isn't sinful and anger that is. And David seems to be calling out sinful anger. The correction to sinful anger, says David, he says, be silent, which tells us something. If the answer or the, the antidote to unrighteous, sinful anger is be silence, then that tell us, tells us something about the problem with unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger, sinful anger is a, is a murmuring. It's an empty but unending complaint. It's filled with many words but little truth. Lots of heat but very little light. And to the murmurers, to the sinfully angry, to those who, according to verse 2, they love vain words. They love having their egos stroked and their hair petted. They love vain words. They seek after lies. They don't care if it's true as long as it confirms their already heartfelt bias. To all of you, David says, the solution is to be quiet. <laughs> To go home to your own beds and to think and to ponder and to consider what is actually true. What has God 
already told us. And after that, uh, verse 4, there's a, there's a selah, there's a pause to consider. Think about this. And second, in verse 5, there's an instead statement. There's a kind of a positive action that's a counter to the... In your, uh, when you're angry, be silent. In your anger, do not sin. Go home, ponder this on your beds. And verse 5 kind of serves as a instead of sinful anger, instead of seeking after vain words and lies, instead... You should offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, what does David mean, right sacrifices? In David's time, temple worship and corporate confession included the sacrifice of animals on the altar as a payment for sin. And for followers of Jesus, he is our sacrificial lamb. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10 tells us that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus offered himself once for all when he, when he willingly died on the cross and put an end to the animal sacrificial system. And even that system, established by God, given to uh, the Hebrew people, was a shadow. It was meant to point to something And David even recognized that that system of sacrificing bulls and goats for for sin, ultimately, even in that, God was still more desirous of getting to the heart. He was really after the heart. In Psalm 51, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So while David might be encouraging a right sacrifice that does include right repentance and and worship according to how God had laid it out uh, in the temple, it's not a stretch to say that he is also calling for contrition, humble humility, a a humble heart before the Lord, rather as an an opposite to this anger and short-sighted fist-shaking at God. More than that, Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a not my will, but your will be done attitude. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13 that if we're going to offer a sacrifice, let it be a sacrifice of praise to God. Let it be the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then he says in verse 16 of Hebrews 13, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If we have confidence in who God is, if we are confident that God will actually fulfill all that He has promised, then we are compelled to be bold and courageous, to call out falsehood, to call out lies, to not put up with and turn a blind eye to injustice and unrighteousness when we hear it and when we see it. And... We are called and compelled to put our own hands to good work, living lives of joyful sacrifice, lips that are filled with praise to God, hands that are are purposed to doing good, giving of self, not to earn anything of God's favor, but as God's people, rescued and redeemed by Jesus already, we love because we have been loved so completely. Friends, courage in our day is a challenge. What to say, what not to say, when to speak up and when to be silent. 
And I believe we are called to courage as it relates to calling out lies and unrighteousness. And we are called also to silent contemplation, to to shutting our mouths on our beds at times, which includes confession and repentance, as our own sin is exposed. And that's the two-sided nature of this point here, this second point. We are both like David, called to speak bold truth, and we are also like the ones David is calling out. May we have ears to hear. And finally, we see in verses 6 through 8 that this confidence in God causes us to make a good confession. Look at verse uh, 6. It's kind of like the voice of the everyday man or woman. Who will show us some good? Lord, shine the light of your face on us. And verse 7 is David's response. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See, there's a way of thinking that looks at barns full of grain and barrels full of wine and says, surely God has blessed me. And for sure, it is right to praise God in times of plenty. However, when the barns and barrels are empty, the temptation on the other side is then to believe, well, God must have abandoned me. God, will you show up again? Well, who will show us some good? Lord? See, David has a different perspective that I think we need. The joy that David has found in knowing God and being known by God is greater than the joy that someone can have when their barns and barrels are full. There is a measure of joy that abundance brings to us, but it does not compare to the joy found in relationship with God. That's what David is saying. There is joy in bread. There is joy in wine. But there is more joy, he says, in God. That's the perspective that David has found and is sustaining him in this time of trouble. So some questions for us to ponder. How do we keep good things? Good things. God's blessings. Good things. Good things like food and drink. Or family and friends, good jobs, and comfortable homes. How do we keep good things like these from becoming God things? Where we find more joy in them as gifts rather than joy in the one who's the giver of all those good gifts. See, we are able to make the good confession that Christ is our joy. We are able to praise the giver and not just the gifts. That when we lose everything, Jesus is still enough for us. And I think our faith is confirmed all the more when at the lowest places, in the places of deep pain and hurt, where there's still work to be done, we can still say, through tears, God is enough. He is good. And in Him, knowing I am loved by Him, knowing that I am known by Him, that He cares for me, that He carries me. Man, I wouldn't trade that joy for all the bread or all the wine in the world. Sometimes it's hard to gain that perspective. Sometimes we need help gaining that perspective. 
sitting with a good friend of mine. I think I've talked about my friend Jack a number of times who diagnosed with a lung disease, kind of a last-minute lung transplant, lived for seven more years until cancer just took over his body. And I sat down with him on his deathbed within weeks of his dying, and I asked him, how does he feel about all this? He's like, well, it's terrible. I'm leaving behind my wife and my two boys. But if I had to go back, and if I was able to to not get this lung disease and then not get the subsequent cancer, if I didn't have to deal with the last 10, 12 years of my life medically, but I would lose the intimacy that, I've, that I have with Jesus, the knowledge of his love for me and his work in me, if I had to give that up in order to be healthy and live longer, I would not do it. That's the perspective that David seems to have here. There is more joy in him than in any barn full of grain. And then verse 8 is David's closing line. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. Here we're talking about sleeping again like we did in Psalm 3 last week. And this has been for me a great encouragement for my heart this week. This is where I'm finding some rest for my own restless heart a little. David says, I will both lie down and sleep for, there's your because. Why will I sleep? Because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is only one who can keep me safe. There is only one who can sustain my life. There is only one who has marked out the measure of my life, has numbered each one of my days. Only one who wrote them down in his book before any one of them came to be. Only one, David says, you alone. That doesn't mean I don't wear my seatbelt. It doesn't mean I don't go to the doctor. It doesn't mean I shouldn't eat healthy and exercise more. But it does mean that I am not the master of my fate. God is not my co-pilot. Only one can make me dwell in safety. I have not only rest, but I have purpose and I have meaning and I have joy because you and you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the perspective that I I see David has by God's grace in Psalm 4. This is the perspective that my heart needs and I think we need. We need to be able to look through the lens, both at God's promises fulfilled and the promises of life eternal to come in order to grow us to grow this faith that we need. We need this perspective and it's faith. It's trusting that God is who He says He is. That He will do all that He said He will do. That gives us this perspective. And that by it, we can see both God's promises as trustworthy and we can see all the little ways by His grace that He is at work in our lives, proving Himself to be faithful time and time again, confirming that this trust we put in Him isn't empty and keeps us sustained and encouraged in the midst of our trials. Oh God, would You grant us this that we need? Would You pray with me? Father, we bless Your name. We thank you for your patience with us. We are so often short-sighted and blind to where you're at work. Would you open our eyes to see the grace of God? To see you as the giver of all our good gifts? 
Would you give us, forgive us when we fail to see you at work? Would you give us the perspective we need? Would you cause our hearts to respond with confession and with praise? Work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.